I grew up in Amber, as many of you know, a little town in central Oklahoma. And uh, we had about 40 acres there, two little 20-acre uh, tracks that were connected by a gate. And, uh, you know, my dad was a pharmacist, so we weren't farmers per se, but we, we kind of played around with, you know, having some cattle and whatnot. And, and so we had the few cows you could have on 40 acres, although there's a lot more cows down there than 40 acres of hold up here, I can tell you that. Um, but we, we had some, some cows this one time. And our place, we've, we've got these two creeks that combine and uh, kind of make a third creek or one larger creek uh, on our back 20 acres. And I remember as a kid, I, I probably, I don't know, I was eight, nine, somewhere in there. I uh, can't really remember. I had to call Dad to get the story because I can't remember all of it. But uh, <clears throat> I was probably eight or nine. And we had these, these cows and, and a, a nice wet spring and so, you know how it is, the cows aren't the smartest animals in the world, and they decided they wanted to go across the creek in the middle of a flash flood kind of deal, and one of those cows got stuck in the mud, and uh, I mean, really stuck, up, up past her belly, you know, just buried down in the mud, and I don't, I don't know how we found her, I don't remember if dad just went down checking cows and found her out there stuck in the mud or what, but there she was, uh, just helpless in the middle of the, the, what was the creek, you know, and the water had gone down in just this big mud pit, and uh, we had to try to get her out of that mud, and of course I was little, so I didn't really try much, I, I think I generally watched, but uh, it was really interesting uh, watching dad try to get that cow out of the mud, uh, a lot more interesting to watch than to be a part of, I'm quite sure, but that, that cow was just buried up to her belly, and uh, we were trying to figure out how to get her out of there. Finally, Dad went and got, we have a little Ford Jubilee tractor and brought that down there. And we had these, you know, little PTO on the back. We had a pulley that you could, you could put on there to run a saw. And that saw was run with a big, long, almost like a canvas belt. It was about 8 or 10 inches uh, wide. And uh, we took that belt and, and took it apart, I guess, and, and dug out underneath that cow enough to get it up underneath her belly and around her and eventually hooked it to the tractor and pulled her out of the mud nice and slow. And so just an interesting story. I often think about that and I think it illustrates quite well what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, But I'll let you see the connection as we go through this. Uh, And so we're going to just move along from a cow stuck in the mud to uh, prophet's. And so I think you'll see the connection here as we look here. So if you would, in your Bible this morning, turn to Isaiah chapter 61. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. So Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. If you would stand with me in the honor of God as we read his word this morning. Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1, says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress, instead of ashes, the oil of gladness, instead of mourning, excuse me, and the garment of praise, 
instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you are so good to us. We're not left stuck in the mud. God, you send a servant to take care of your people and to do what they could never do. God, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to proclaim good news to the poor. So God, we praise you for your servant. God, we praise you for what you do. Lord, give us wisdom and understanding as we study your word this morning. God, may we not just incorporate more knowledge and information into our heads, but God, may you transform us through the work of the Spirit and the work of your Word in our lives this morning. So God, we love you and we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to be looking at this passage in Isaiah and several other places. In fact, uh, uh, I'm probably overly ambitious, but I want to give you a quick road map of what we're going to do this morning, and if you have a pencil and paper, you might want to write this down because we're only going to cover about 36 chapters of the Bible this morning. So we'll see how that goes. You guys in my Sunday school class just laugh, because you know I can't make it through one. But uh, this morning we're going to look at 2 Chronicles, uh, chapters 26 through 32. Or if you would rather, you can go to 2 Kings and find the similar material in chapters 15 through 20. We're going to think about Isaiah 40 through 55. Matthew chapters 2 through 4 and chapter 11, Luke 4, Romans 3, and Romans 8. Now, we'll see if we can do that, uh, but I think it's important for us to stop and think about the, the big picture of, of what's going on here in this passage in Isaiah 61 particularly. All of these uh, have bearing on Isaiah 61, and so let's, uh, let's just dive on in here, and, and we're going to have kind of Bible study for church this morning, if that's okay. And so the first thing I want you to, to know and understand is this passage we read from Isaiah uh, is, is part of uh, the, the latter part of the book where he's, he's writing and, and we have what we call the, uh, uh, the ser- servant songs or songs of the servant really in 40 through 55 and, and then just kind of the conclusion here of Isaiah as he's talking about what that, that coming servant is going to, to do. Um, and so... As we think about that, I want you to understand a little bit of the context or the the setting of Isaiah. So when Isaiah wrote this, what's going on in the world around him? And I think that'll that'll help you see a little bit uh, of of the importance of what's going on here. And so to think about that, we need to look at 2 Chronicles, 2 Kings. You you don't necessarily have to flip over there if you don't want to, but I would encourage you to, to go and spend some time reading through those and thinking about them. And I'm just going to try to summarize as briefly as I can what's going on. So we're told in Isaiah 1.1 that Isaiah is a prophet during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, right? You've got to love these kings' names in the Old Testament. Uh, and so these are, these are four kings there um, toward the, the middle to latter part of the, the reign of kings in the southern kingdom, Judah. So Uzziah, or Azariah, if you're reading 2 Kings 15, is the first king. And in fact, you'll, you'll know this from Isaiah chapter 6, right? It's in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah saw 
this vision of God high and lifted up, right? And so he, he, he worked and ministered during the time of Uzziah, the very end of Uzziah's reign, uh, and the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And so let's just think about what happened during the reign of those kings. You can find that in Second Chronicles 26 is in reference to Uzziah or Second Kings 15. But Uzziah was a king of the southern kingdom Judah. He reigned for 52 years. We're, we're told in summation in Second Chronicles that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's good. Like we always want to hear that, right? Wouldn't it be great to have somebody remember you as that, as someone who did right in the eyes of the Lord? And that's what Uzziah did. However, he wasn't perfect, and we're told later on that he entered the temple and he tried to burn incense on the altar of incense by himself. Well, that's, that's a no-no. That's what the priests do. The king doesn't do that. The priests do that. Now, the kingly priest will do that, but Uzziah is not him. And so he entered the temple. He tried to burn the incense there. Uh, it's a task that's specific for the priest. We see that in Exodus chapter 30. And so what happens is God strikes him with leprosy on his forehead. And so he was a leper until the day he died because of his disobedience to the Lord. And so while Uzziah uh, was a good king in the, for his most part, and he was someone who did right in the eyes of the Lord, he was not a perfect king. And here we see his disobedience to the Lord so much so that he goes and takes upon himself to do that which only a priest ought to do and to offer a sacrifice. The response to that of God is to give him leprosy. And so he leaves there, and in fact, he no longer is able to go into the temple or into the, uh, the, um, uh, the palace. And his son, Jotham, reigns in his place, kind of as a, as a, uh, a secondary king there or uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but, but he reigns there for his, da- his dad while in abstention, maybe his, his dad's not able to be there. And that's, that's how Uzziah's life is kind of summed up for us. Good guy, disobedient to the Lord, became a leper for the rest of his life and wasn't able to, to, to do what God called him to do because of his unfaithfulness. And so his son steps in, and we find his son and information about him in Second Chronicles 27 or in Second Kings 15, 32 to 38, very little information here about him, really. Uh, but Jotham, or however you pronounce it, he reigned for 16 years. And what we're told about him is something good, that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord or in the eyes of the Lord. But despite his leadership and despite him being somebody that points people towards God and, and leads them in a godly way, and despite who he is, the people still sacrifice on the high places, which are places to worship other gods that have been set up throughout Israel, um, even from the time of Solomon. And so that's what happens. The people uh, maybe have a good leader, but they don't follow him in all things, and they still get, continue to sacrifice to other gods and to worship in ways that are contrary to what God has told the people to do. And that's about all we know about him. Um, we get to the third king, King Ahaz. King Ahaz, we find information about him in Second Chronicles 28 or Second Kings 16. Well, king Ahaz reigned for 16 years as well, but he didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. We're told that King Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was disobedient. He led his people to do things contrary to God. And so we look at a summation of his life. We see that he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. And if you don't know, that's, that's kind of a, to, a, a slap in the face to say you of the, the, the line of David 
the king of Judah would follow after the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, which has been uh, anything but ideal or loving of God, right? I mean, if we look at Israel, and if you're familiar with your history of the northern kingdom, uh, pretty much all the kings of the northern kingdom are bad. Uh, they don't do what honors the king, uh, what honors the Lord. And so here is Ahaz looking like the world around him. Uh, instead of being different from the world, he looks like Israel to the north. And so, in fact, so much so that he burns his son as an offering. Right? He goes and he worships on the high places, worshiping other gods, at the very least worshiping God in ways contrary to how he's prescribed. And so during the reign of Ahaz, Israel attacks Judah. You ever, you ever follow this in the Old Testament? You, you never think about this, but the northern kingdom attacks the southern kingdom. And so during the reign of Ahaz, the northern kingdom attacks the southern kingdom of Judah and conquers it. Well, I shouldn't say conquers it, but they win the battle and they carry off 200,000 captives back to Israel. It's interesting. Not only that, Syria attacks Judah as well. And Syria wins their battle, and they capture a great number of Ahaz's people. Now, fortunately, the Lord, working through, through uh, his instruments, uh, the 200,000 that are captured by Israel are eventually sent back because the leaders in Israel say, God's going to curse us if we keep these people among us. And so they take care of them, provide for them, send them to Jericho, and, and then they can go back home. Uh, not necessarily the case with Syria. And so here, well before the Babylonian captivity of God's people, they, they already understand captivity. They even understand captivity in the hands of their own brothers. And the nation to the north, Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, uh, whose, whose capital would be Damascus. And so they, they've been attacked by them, they've, they've lost battles to them, their people have been carried off into captivity by them, and then who else attacks? Edom attacks, and they defeat Judah. And then the Philistines attack, and the Philistines defeat Judah. There's a real theme here. And so God's people are, are living in defeat as their king Ahaz does not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, burns his son as an offering to false gods, worships on high places, of, worships false gods there. And, and so what he does is, is he's desperate and he needs help. And where does he turn to? He doesn't turn to the Lord. But he turns to the king of Assyria. It's a bad idea. He turns to Tiglath-Pelesar, who's the king of Assyria, and he asks him to help him in his fight against Israel and Syria. Well, Tiglath-Pileser does just do that, in fact, and, and comes and attacks Syria, uh, and in fact uh, conquers Damascus. And in, the, in the, the time of conquering Damascus, Ahaz travels to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, and while he's there, he sees this, this temple in Damascus with this great altar, and he decides, that's really neat, I want that in Jerusalem. I covet this false temple and this false worship of another god and so let's take that altar and build it in jerusalem in place of god's altar and we'll take god's altar and set it to the north side of the tabernacle or to the temple and i'll inquire of god there myself and so the altar that god has prescribed for his people to offer their sacrifices on king ahaz takes it and he says no we're not going to do that we're going to move it to the north side of the temple and i'm going to use it for my personal inquiries to god Again, taking upon himself 
the um, role of a priest, which he is not. He's the king, and he's a bad king. And so he builds a, a large altar uh, modeled after a pagan altar in Damascus. He inquires of God on God's bronze altar by himself as if he were a priest, and he basically desecrates the temple, stealing parts of it to give tribute to the Assyrians uh, for their help. And really, uh, for the most part, Israel is never uh, on their own after that. They are some kind of vassal state under Assyria or Babylon or Egypt for the rest of their history. And so that's King Ahaz. This is all during the, the life of, of uh, Isaiah. Fourth king, King Hezekiah. So we read about King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29 through 32. You read about him in 2 Kings 18 through 20. He reigned 29 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He cleansed the temple of all of the, the, um, uh, the, the doings of Ahaz. He restores the temple worship. He reinstitutes the celebration of the Passover. He restores the temple service by organizing the priests. And this is what the Bible has to say about Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 31, verse 20. It says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. He depended upon the Lord when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came against Jerusalem. So when Assyria finally comes to conquer Jerusalem, by God's provision, Hezekiah is the king, and Hezekiah turns to the Lord for help, unlike Ahaz, who turned to Assyria for help. And as he does so, he's dependent upon him, and the Lord delivers them from the hands of the Assyrians. And in fact, just prior to that, in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 32, verse 8, it says, this is what, what Hezekiah is telling the people of Israel, "...be strong and courageous." Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the hordes that are with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. What a king. He gives glory and honor to God and is dependent upon him. And, and so this is the fourth king during the, the, uh, the service of Isaiah as a prophet. And so I wanted to go through this history to help you understand that when the book of Isaiah was written, they understood conflict, right? This is all during the life of one man. Uh, so this would be uh, like um, that, that great generation that was alive for World War II and for Korea and for Vietnam and for um, um, Desert Storm and Desert Shield and Operation Iraqi Freedom, and all of those. I mean, it wasn't like they just heard about it or they read about it in the books or their family told them about it. This is a generation that has experienced this over and over and over again. And not only that, but they have experienced loss and defeat and captivity at the hands of other nations. And then they have turned around and see how God has delivered them. All the same generation. This is who Isaiah is writing to. People that understand that. They've, they've lived that. They've felt that. And so they know what it is to desire liberty and freedom. And so with that bit of background there, let's look at Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. So on Isaiah 61, what we're, what we're told here is we're told about a servant. And like I said earlier, this is, this is a, a section that's tied with the servant songs of Isaiah 40 through 55. 
And I want to read real quickly a portion of each of those four songs uh, to give you an idea of who this servant is. So Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9 I just want to read verses 6 and 7, but the first song is 42, 1 through 9. Verses 6 and 7, this is what it says. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. And I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. This is what the servant is going to do. Or let's look at the second servant song in Isaiah 49, 1 through 13. And here I I just simply want to read verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So here we see that the servant is indicated as Israel. And you're probably sitting here thinking if you've studied the book of Isaiah much or been to church very much, you're like, now wait a minute, the, the servant in Isaiah isn't Israel, right? It's somebody else. It's the Messiah. Well, let's just wait a minute. That's what he says. He identifies the servant here as Israel. But if we jump down just a little bit, if I can find it. Here we go. Verses 5 and 6. It says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I honored in the eyes of the Lord, I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, and my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so I, I hope you see here that in verse uh, 3, he talks about his servant, I lost my spot there, sorry, yeah, in verse 3, he talks about his servant being Israel, but here, just a few verses later, uh, he, he goes on to say, so Israel, this servant, is there to bring Jacob back, that Israel might be gathered to him. And so whoever this Israel is, it's not necessarily the Israel that is strayed from God or Jacob, who has gone away and needs to be brought back. So I just want to point that out as we think through these servant songs. Look at Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. I want to read verses 5 and 6. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Or one that I can't help but read a large portion of, Isaiah 52. And we're just going to read a large portion because I just love this passage. Starting in verse 7 of Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see and return to the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing. You wastes 
you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. I'm sorry, I'm reading 52. I want 53. I'm like, this doesn't seem right. Isaiah 53, in verse 7, says this. There we go. I was confused. Isaiah 53, verse 7 says, He has oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors. And so this is just a portion of what is said about the servant in Isaiah. And so when we get to Isaiah 61, this is what we're told. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. So one of the things we're told about the servant is we've read a couple of these passages and these sections from the servant song and we've seen that uh, he's called Israel and yet he's the Israel that's going to bring Israel back and that he is somebody who's going to turn his cheek, uh, not turn his cheek, and he's going to have his beard plucked out. He's somebody who's going to suffer for the, the, the sins of many. Here we're told that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. He's been commissioned... Uh, to, to bring a message of hope, to cast, uh, the, I guess the, the, that mission is really cast in kind of messianic, messianic terminology. And so what does he do? What does this servant do? And, and why are we talking about him this morning? Is because we, we want to think about the greatest liberty of all, right? I mean, we think about the 4th of July, I love the 4th of July, love liberty, those kind of things. But I want us to think this morning about what is the most important liberty of all. And it comes here from the servant. As we look here at the servant, here's what he's going to do. This is his, his work in verses 1 and 2. He's going to bring good news to the poor. He's going to bind up the brokenhearted. He's going to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's going to open the prisons of those who are bound. He's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But he's going to do more than that, right? It goes on in, in the rest of 2 and verse 3 to say he's going to proclaim the day of vengeance. He's going to comfort those who mourn. This servant is going to give a headdress instead of ashes, right? He's going to give oil of gladness instead of mourning. He's going to give a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So this is the servant. This is what he's going to do. Now, I want to read that, and, and I don't necessarily want to break all of those things down individually. Uh, We could do that and spend a lot of time looking at different places. But I just want us to skip from here in Isaiah over to the book of Luke. 
So if you'd flip over to the book of Luke, chapter 4. Chapter 4, we have Jesus. And uh, kind of the setting here is what's Jesus been doing? Well, Jesus has been being tempted in the wilderness. And so he's fresh off of the temptation in the wilderness. And he's beginning his ministry. And so if you'll look at chapter 4 of Luke, starting in verse 16... We'll read here for a bit. And Jesus returned, up to 14 and 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Boy, it sounds familiar, huh? And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And amen. You know, we look here, and, and in Luke, Jesus is, has just come from his temptation in the wilderness. He begins to do his ministry. Here he is in, in Nazareth, and he's given the opportunity to read the scroll at the synagogue. And there's a several things here I find interesting. One, that he reads this specific passage, which is of no surprise, but two, that the people were astonished by what he had to say. And, uh, and if you go on and read there, they all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words. And I think if somebody stood up in our church today and read that passage and said, today you see it fulfilled, implication in me, hopefully we wouldn't be marveled by his words. <laughs> we would think, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? I can't believe he said that. But Jesus came and with authority reads from the scroll of Isaiah Psalm 60, or Isaiah 61, and, and then applies that to himself, and the people are marveled, and they see his words as gracious because they're true. And so he quotes here from Isaiah 61, and what's he, what's he doing? Well, what, what is Jesus saying he's fulfilled? Well, he's come and he's proclaimed good news to the poor. He's, he's come to proclaim liberty for the captives. And so he's quoting this Isaiah 61, but he's also uh, quoting from Isaiah 58, 6, Uh, as well as uh, referencing a passage in Leviticus 25 that the passage in Isaiah 61 verse 2 is referencing when it says the year of the Lord's favor. And so as he reads this passage and he ties it with these others, uh, he just points out that all of this is about me. When Isaiah wrote the song of the servants there at the end of Isaiah and, and what we read in Isaiah 61... He wasn't simply talking about man, the people. They need, they need freedom in captivity, uh, freedom from the captivity of Israel or freedom from the captivity of Syria or freedom from the war with Edom or the fighting with the Philistines or the Assyrians who come after them or the captivity that will ultimately come in Babylon. That's not what he's writing about. He's writing about some greater liberty than that. And Jesus says today, in your presence, that is fulfilled. I've come to proclaim liberty, and it's the greatest liberty of all. 
And so we look here and we think about this and, and, and we begin to understand that, man, it's the, it's the year of the Lord's favor that's come. And what is that referencing? Well, in Leviticus 25, that's referencing the year of Jubilee. So in, in Leviticus 25, 8 through 10, it says, You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. And then you shall sound the loud trumpet, and on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. Do you see it? I mean, right here, the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee, when does it start? On the day of atonement. And Jesus is saying, this is fulfilled in me. I came to proclaim liberty to the captives. And that liberty is going to come in the day of atonement. And it's going to come through Jesus as the sacrifice. And so Jesus reads this passage and he says, you want to know about the greatest liberty of all? The liberty that Isaiah was referencing. He wasn't simply talking about at some point after the Babylonian captivity you would need to be freed. He was talking about something far greater than that. He was talking about a liberty that is elusive to us, that is outside of our hands. And so, forgive the picture, but we're just like the cow in the creek. We can't get ourselves out of the mud and the muck and the filth. But Jesus comes proclaiming the greatest liberty of all. And so let's just think about this. Just think about this servant we see here in, in Luke chapter 4, really. The servant in Isaiah 40 through 55 is named Israel, as we talked about already in 49.3. He's shown to be distinct from Israel in 49.5. We looked at that as well, and, and what follows. And so what I want to tell you and point out to you is that Jesus is Israel as it should be. And the book of Matthew is making that, that picture for us. If we think about the book of Matthew for a moment, we'll look at Matthew 2 through 4, and then we'll jump over to Matthew 11. But in Matthew 2 through 4, uh, we, we have this account of the life of Jesus and uh, as, as, as a child. And one of the things that, that Matthew does is he quotes from the book of Hosea 11.1. 1. And in Hosea 11.1 1, it says... When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so this verse sometimes causes consternation for people that are reading the book of Matthew, and they're like, well, what in the world is Matthew doing? He's using that reference wrong as he applies it to Jesus, because in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, this is what Matthew says. He says, um, let's just, we'll, we'll jump up to 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother, talking of Joseph, uh, by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Because in Hosea 11, 1, the ultimate fulfillment of that is not the exodus, but it's the, 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 the what's the word I'm looking for? Jesus coming out of, out of Egypt, right? The true Israel. The Israel of the song of Isaiah. The Israel as it should have been. Here he comes. And so Hosea says, out of, out of uh, Egypt I've called my son. And, and here he says, uh, Jesus is, 
in Matthew, he's saying this is Jesus. Jesus is the Israel that's called out of Egypt. And if you notice, in the rest of the book of Matthew, or at least the first section here, he's going to picture the life of Jesus as the exodus from Egypt. And so here he uses this quote to say, here he's coming out of Egypt. Uh, and then uh, you can look at uh, verses 19 and 20 there. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who have sought the child's life are dead. And so here it is. The, the passage from Hosea has been applied to Jesus, that he's the Israel. And then after that, here's Jesus coming out of, uh, out of Egypt uh, his, his exodus out of Egypt. And, and then you can look just at the next chapter at his baptism, and, and many people would connect that with the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, maybe maybe not, um, but you've definitely got that going on there. And, and more specifically in verse 16 of chapter 3, as Jesus is being baptized, what happens is the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove, right? Which is exactly what happens when the temple is built at the Mount Sinai and the, the Spirit of the Lord descends on the temple, right? And then after that, the people wander in the wilderness for 40, for 40 years. And, and so in Matthew's gospel, we go on, and, and what do we see next in Matthew 4, 1 through 11? Well, it's Jesus wandering in the wilderness, his, his temptation in the wilderness. And so in, very, in very, a very structured way, the writer of Matthew's gospel is saying, Jesus is Israel, as it should have been. He's fulfilling what Israel couldn't do. And, and that just makes sense when we think about what Jesus does, right? He's the priest that does what the priests can't do. And he's the king that does what the kings can't do. And he's the prophet that does what no other prophet can do. Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. And so when we think about this and we look at the book of Matthew, we see Matthew saying that Jesus is that Israel. And so when you think about what's going on in the servant songs of Isaiah, when it says, my servant is Israel, know that his servant is Israel. And Israel is Jesus. You know, in Isaiah 40 through 55, the servant is shown to be innocent, and that can definitely not be said of the people of God. They are in no way innocent. As I teach through the book of Ezekiel, you can't help but see that. There's no innocence there at all. Uh, God's people, Israel, are not innocent, but Jesus is, in fact. Because Israel has not just been beset with defeat at the hand of other nations. It's beset with sin, right? Israel's trouble with other nations is really only a symptom of a far greater problem. And so they don't need liberty from those who attack them from outside, but they need liberty from that which attacks them from within. And so in Isaiah's day, Syria, Israel, Edom, the Philistines, Assyria, and Babylon are not ultimately what God's people need liberty from. While they face physical captivity, it's only symptomatic of the spiritual captivity that they could not escape. And so they needed a servant to come who would liberate them and give them the greatest liberty that they could experience. Do you, do you remember what John the Baptist said uh, after he was put in prison in Matthew chapter 11? You can flip over there. In Matthew chapter 11, we, we read this. Verses 2 through 6. Now, when John heard the, in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. 
lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And Jesus answers John's question by pointing to the fulfillment of Isaiah. And, and we don't have time this morning to look at all of these, but the blind seeing, we see that in Isaiah 29:18, the lame walking, Isaiah 35 verse 6, the deaf hearing, Isaiah 29:18, the dead being raised, Isaiah 26:19, God's good news preached to the poor, Isaiah 61:1, where we were just at. So Jesus is the servant of Isaiah, and Jesus is the deliverer of his people. Our greatest liberty is found in Jesus. So how does he liberate us? Well, let's, let's look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans 3, 21, a familiar passage for, for many of us. This is what the Lord says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance, he was passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So do you see it? The, the, the greatest liberty of all, that liberty from sin, is accomplished by the work of Jesus, who is righteous, and, and by his placing himself on a cross and dying for the sins of his people, when they place their faith in Him and believe in Him, they receive the great gift of grace and redemption through Him and in Him. And so Jesus is the propitiation or, or uh, uh, the satisfaction, if you will, of God's wrath and God's just wrath poured out on sin. And where is it going to be poured out on? Matt's sin, your sin, all of our sin. Where is God's wrath going to be poured out on? Well, it's going to be poured out on the sinner. Except for those that place their faith in Jesus Christ. And when they believe in Him, His righteousness is given to them and their sin is given to Him. And so Jesus becomes the propitiation or the satisfaction for that. And so instead of God's wrath falling on me or you, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the wrath falls on Jesus. And that's why the cross is such a beautiful thing. It's a terrible thing, but a beautiful thing. Because God shows us grace and mercy and he liberates us from sin and death through Jesus' work. And the greatest liberty we can have comes through the work of Jesus Christ. And so God is both just and the justifier. Sin is punished, and we are justified because of the work of Jesus. And you can go over to Romans 8, and we'll close after this. In Romans 8, 1, where it says... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so we can be liberated from sin and its effects by placing our faith and trust in Jesus. And we don't have to face condemnation because Jesus, on the cross, took that penalty and that punishment upon himself and was condemned for our sin if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. So we're set free in Christ from the law of sin and death. This is our greatest liberty. It is liberty from sin. It's freedom from death. It's union with Christ and it's right relationship with God. So notice that Jesus stops quoting Isaiah in the middle of 61-2 when we were back there. Did you notice he, he talks about this, this being the year of the Lord's favor? And then we read another verse, and, and there's the rest of chapter 2 there, or verse 2 there. And, and look, at, look at what's said there. He goes on to say, "...in the day of vengeance of God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes." the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so Jesus stops there because he's, he's indicating that some of that is accomplished that day. The remainder of it is yet to be accomplished, right? And so we see what comes after where he stopped about the favorable year of the Lord is to be concluded in his second coming. And so he's going to proclaim the day of vengeance. The, the, the judgment of God will come at the, the second coming of Christ. The, the comfort for those who mourn, the, the giving of this headdress instead of ashes, the idea that we're, we're given gifts and taken care of and instead of mourning and weeping and, and being in ashes uh, is, is given to us there. And so ultimately there will be comfort and there will be care and there will be things taken, uh, will be taken care of in, in, in a time yet to come, right? And so... Not all of that is going to happen immediately. Just because you uh, uh, place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, just because you, you look to Him for salvation, doesn't mean that you're going to get all of that stuff right now. And Jesus doesn't say that. He stops short of that. He says, this is what's fulfilled today. These other things, they're coming. And they will come in completion. We can have complete confidence in them because God has been faithful to keep all of His promises. So we look forward to them with expectation, and at the final consummation of our greatest liberty of all, we'll have those things. We have not simply experienced the greatest of liberations sometime in our past. We experience it now, every day, and we look forward to it ultimately in its ultimate completion in the days to come. So just in conclusion, this has been kind of meandering here, but I hope you see the, the big picture of what's going on. <clears throat> you know, some of my favorite memories as a kid were from our 4th of July parties for our family. Uh, we had we did it upright when it came to 4th of July, okay? I mean, we, we had a good time. We shot lots of fireworks. We'd fly RC airplanes and drive RC cars. We'd, we'd play paintball one year. We actually kind of got a paintball field down on the creek. Uh, we, we'd shoot off Estes model rockets, which were always so cool. Um, we, we had lots of food and lots of family and just great time. But do you know what's better than the 4th of July? Every Sunday. Every Sunday is better than the 4th of July. Why? 
Because every Sunday we celebrate the goodness and greatness of God. Every Sunday we celebrate liberation from our greatest enemy. If you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, and placed your faith in Him alone for salvation, you're missing out on the greatest liberty of all. You're still stuck in the mud and the muck and the filth of your sins, just like that cow. And just like that cow, the only hope you have of being saved from a sure death is outside help. And that outside help comes from a Savior. You need a Savior who will come down and sweep you out of the filth. You have a Savior who will do that very thing. You want liberty from sin and death? You can find it today in Jesus. So place your hope in Him and in Him alone. Repent of your sin and trust in Him and enjoy the greatest liberty of all. And so as we celebrate today, may we celebrate because it's Sunday, and may we celebrate the greatest liberty of all, that we can be saved from our sin and its consequences and its penalties because of the great work of Jesus Christ, who is the servant who came to proclaim liberty to the captives. We were the captives. And if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the chains have been set free. You've been, they've been loosed. You've been set free. Praise God for the greatest liberty of all. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for providing for us in a way that we could never provide for ourselves. God, may we bring glory and honor to you in the way we live our lives. And this morning, Father, as we read your word, may we not try to usurp your goodness and greatness by saying that we can achieve that liberty by something we do. For we cannot. No one is saved by works of the law. But God, we are saved through the work of Jesus. And so, Jesus, we praise you this morning. We, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for what a, a great liberty you've provided for us. And God, may you be praised this morning in our lives and may our lives shine as a light to those around us that give glory and honor to you because we speak about what you've done for us and we tell about that. And God, we live according to your word, emulating you, reflecting you to the world around us. God, we thank you for such a great liberty. We thank you for salvation. God, I pray this morning, if anyone here does not know you, that today would be the day of salvation. They would place their faith and trust in Jesus and what you did on the cross and the fact that we can't save ourselves, but you save us. We would repent of our sin and turn from our wicked ways. And that, God, you would be glorified in that this morning. That is my heart's prayer for those of us here this morning. God, those of us that know you, God, I pray that we would be excited and reinvigorated to realize and just to think through the great liberty we have because of Jesus' work. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.